Hey everyone, just a couple of updates before we start. Registration is now open for our second annual Craft Spirits Packaging Awards and our eighth annual Distillers Convention and Vendor Trade Show. Check out AmericanCraftSpirits.org to learn more and be sure to register for the Packaging Awards by October 1st. Also, in our last episode, we said that Denord Craft Spirits, which is now Denord Social Spirits, was the first black-owned craft distillery. But it turns out there were other black distillers with DSP permits before them. A listener pointed out that Delaware-based Legacy Distilling, aka Painted Stave Distilling, which was co-founded by Ron Gomes, received its DSP in June of 2013. And prior to that, in 2012, Jackie Summers of Sorel Liqueur received his DSP. If you know of another black-owned distillery predating those we've mentioned, we want to hear from you. Drop us a line at news at americancraftspirits.org. Thanks. It was something that every day those words uh, just haunt me. Not haunt me, it just reminds me of what what it is I bring and what I want to bring. It was his mission, it was my mission. So I just painted him on the side of the building one day and it caused a little confusion because what the hell's do good spirits? It's prohibition distillery. So we, um, I just wanted to go through and honor him. From the American Craft Spirits Association and Craft Spirits Magazine, this is the Craft Spirits Podcast. I'm John Page, and today on the program, do good every day. Those words were part of a toast in 2016 made by a friend of Brian Fauquet, who founded Prohibition Spirits in 2009. Do good was the last thing he ever said to him. Today, those words are the core mission of the Roscoe, New York-based distillery, which recently rebranded as Do Good Spirits. Back in August, Brian spoke to Editor-in-Chief Jeff Cialetti in person at the bar, Thief, when they were both in town for Bar Convent, Brooklyn. So we apologize for some of the background noise in this episode. They discussed gin, vodka, bourbon, and trends in the world of craft spirits. But first, Brian talked about that name change. Prohibition was never my fa- favorite thing anyway. You know, we, we started out 15 years ago. You know, we're, we're, we've been doing this a long time in New York. And um, about five years ago, actually this October, will be, um, will be the anniversary of, of what made the name change happen. I went to my uh, 20-year class reunion, and my best friend, uh, you know, was there. And uh, he was a... Com- he was a former Navy SEAL CIA commando, and he made a toast at the end of the night to uh, to do good. And the idea of the toast was, I kind of made fun of him, because I didn't think it was a uh, great toast for the end of the night. And uh, he looked at me and said, you do good every day. Everything you do is always trying to make something better. And that's what life's, our life's mission is. So at the time, I didn't know it was going to be the last two words he said to me. Oh, God. Um, so a, uh, we were always at our distillery, always raising money and awareness for his men. Uh, he was a uh, third option foundation, the organization that takes care of his people, but they're the, the commandos of our country, the ones that go places where no one realizes that they go, and it's people that get left behind or they get served quietly. So. Um, the similar company's always been the Poppy Flower, which is a flower of remembrance. So for me, I was always giving money to him to get to to take care of his people. 
about a month later he died um, in a combat operation in Afghanistan. And it's, it's, um, uh, yeah, so, um, sorry. No. Um, yeah, about a year ago, in the middle of the height of COVID, it was something that every day those words uh, just haunt they not haunt me, it just reminds me of what what it is I bring and what I want to bring. It was his mission, it was my mission. So I just painted him on the side of the building one day and it caused a little confusion because what the hell's do good spirits? It's prohibition distillery. So we um, I just wanted to go through and honor him and, and self honor myself. So uh, yeah, back last October made the change. It's a name much more fitting for a distillery that is kind of central to its community. Um, we put our community first, we put our country first, we put our state first. And that, that was all in the response, kind of coincided with everything we did during COVID. Sorry to get uh, just a lot going on in, no. uh, in the world today, especially. Yeah, especially with this week with Afghanistan, that must yeah. be bringing up some really complicated emotions and especially well, you just feel you know you you feel for the people that are going into a situation knowing what situation they're going into and uh it's it's just not a good time you know so i'm just my mind's more on uh more on on those people than uh then on, you know, it's all his people. So, so sorry about that. No, absolutely, of course. Um, so let's talk about the spirits a little bit. Um, we'll start with the gin. Uh, you know, you you have a pretty. Um, I mean, I don't want to I don't want to say minimalist, but you stick to like five basic botanicals. I mean, there I seem there seems to be kind of a movement in that direction. I've been seeing with people that it almost sort of bringing gin back to its roots because you have people with their like 40 different botanicals and whatever and um that's that's fine but you know is anything really going to be able to assert itself in that sort of context so tell me about like your approach to making gin yeah i have a very simple approach to things is it's that keep it simple um in simplicity is complexity i think a lot of folks when they they look at spirits um at least gin, especially, you know, they're ingredients. Each ingredient should serve a purpose. If you go, for me, when I was making my gin, um, I really just wanted to make vodka. That's that's first, what's different about our gin is we use our actual finished vodka as a base. Not neutral spirit, but something that I filtered and then I destroy and then rebuild. But, but to me, um, I started out with four ingredients, you know, to, because I, I like juniper, I like coriander, um, orris root and bitter orange peel are the four cores to almost every gin in the world. And as I started researching this, you know, it took me about five years, not, not in test batches, five years to decide what ingredient I wanted to use. I obsessed about ingredients. The, sixth, the fifth ingredient is lemon verbena. Um, as I add flavor and the way we layer this, because in our gin you can actually taste each ingredient independently on their own in succession. It's something that's very cool with it, um, but I don't believe in using, once I got to six ingredients, I couldn't taste the sixth one. I couldn't taste the seventh, I couldn't taste the eighth. So if you can't taste it, then what's the point? It's, I, I know that's the trend, uh, you know, big companies in order to sell more bottles, they went and had the regular gin and then they came up with the 10 and the 20 botanical. What's the point? 
it, if you can't taste an ingredient, why use it? And often you think about it um, when you're cooking. As you're cooking, by throwing more stuff in the pot, does it make it a better thing or throwing the exact proportion that should be in there? The balance is what it should have. So that's why I went and stuck with, with five botanicals. It's because I couldn't taste the six and I didn't understand the point in, in putting more stuff that didn't matter. Just use things that matter. Yeah. Um, is that an alright answer? No, that's that's exactly what I was like. Yeah, yeah. yeah no. It, that, that's... I hate, I, I'm not a big fan of... One of my friends had like 16 other ingredients. Like he named his list. He goes, I've got 30-something ingredients. And I go, why? Yeah. And he goes, dude, that's what everybody wants. And I, that was the answer. And I go, but I would have done it with juniper, coriander, orris root. And then when the lemon verbena hit, the lemon verbena was nothing more than me getting ready to throw out a jar of lemon verbena. I didn't like the nose of it. It hurt my nose, but then I took a sip and I was getting ready to dump it and I said, whoa, that really is cool. And I and, you know, brought in some cinnamon notes and some really uh, fruit stripe bubblegum flavor. Do you think that, you know, a lot of times, you know, you get into an issue of, of quantity versus quality, obviously, with that. Like, you can play up, we've got all these botanicals, but it's, is it really going to impact the quality of the spirit itself? But then, I, I think, would you say that it's more of a marketing thing more than anything else, just to say you've got this many botanicals? You know, uh, kind of a loaded question, depending yeah. on who's answering it. I think if, if, if someone puts in that many, if that's somebody's design, then God bless them. You know, their, their palate's better than mine and all that. I always, when back when I started making spirits, there weren't a lot of us out there in the craft distilling world. You know, in New York, we didn't have 160 distilleries like we do today. So I was making my own roadmap. You know, so to me, I didn't look to all the other ones. I just sat with myself and, you know, 230 gallons of alcohol and made my first batch. And I did it based off of memory of what flavor I liked. So the recipe we do today was, was I only made one recipe ever. I only made one distillation, one test batch, which was the first batch. I didn't have the money to go through and make two test batches or three or four or a hundred. And I didn't have a still smaller than a 300 gallon still. Um, so I made a 300-gallon batch of gin, and that, that is the recipe. <laughs> so maybe I could have added 10 botanicals, and it would have been awesome. But I didn't have the money. I had the money to do one batch, and it turned out okay. So we're feeling pretty good. We thought we got it right in the, the first round. And, you know, let's talk about the American craft gin category to begin with. I, I mean, it's, it's evolved a bit since you first started making gin. Um... You know, obviously, gin kind of conquered Europe uh, as you know as a craft uh, product. Tell me what you think about uh, sort of America's moment within craft gin, where the category can go, and where you've seen it evolve since you started. Well, certainly, you know, the first craft gins, the back going back to when we got into this, there were only a few gins on the shelf that you saw. You saw Aviation and you saw Blue Coat. Um, and there were a few other ones, but I don't really remember that many gins dominating the category. I think gin is something that allows American, or to allow distilleries to kind of show their own palettes and their creativity. Um, it is having a moment, of course. But for us, 
what I what I do find from a manufacturer all my spirits, it depends on where that moment is. If it's in a city, then gin's having a moment. But you're going out, you go a mile or two outside into the suburbs, and it's still vodka out there, and whiskey, and different things. So I think, I hope I'm answering the question. You are, right? you are, you are. Um, because to me, you know, I think every spirit has a customer. And I think there's a lot of people that are that are venturing over and trying gin. And it's amazing talking 15 years later, back when you know, I've been drinking gin for 25 years, you know, and, and, and it's funny to see people just expo- experiencing it. What I find when people come to our distillery and when we're doing tastings, as soon as they drink our gin, they go, I'm, I never liked gin, but I love this. And then what we explain to them is that you probably didn't like it because you tried something made by a big company that you stole out of your parents' house or that in college you bought the cheapest thing of and you made a, a lifetime judgment on that. So I think craft is bringing more people back to trying something they wouldn't have tried because people seem more willing to give it a chance again. Sort of one term that I've been hearing a lot of people use in relation to their earlier experiences with gin is ginsident. Um, there's always something that happened to them that gave them a very bad experience. I mean, and that's, um, I feel like, I mean, that's not so much a question as it is a comment. I, I mean, it seems to be a thing. It seems to be gin more so than any other category, and I, I don't quite know why that is. But It depends on where you go, because, you know, I've, I've, I've had, heck, you know, 15 years of doing direct tastings over and over and over again at fairs, at markets, at at cocktail events. You know, so the gamut of from the, the state fair all the way through bar convent, you know, when you're going through and doing tastings, you're getting different people. So depending on where you are, it is amazing that that Gincident is a great example. You know, most people don't look at the proof of a gin. The gin is a wonderful thing, right? You know, when you look at a London Dry in London, it's an 80-proof spirit. Right. So when you look at a London Dry that travels across the pond over to the U.S., it all of a sudden gains that 14-proof. Well, it's all about shelf stability. It's not about drinkability. So what we found is most consumers, when they go through and they have that gin incident, it's just because they're not looking at the proof. I make a 94-proof gin. I make a 94-proof gin because I really didn't know much about gin when I made it, and I saw Beefeater, Tecaray, Plymouth, and all the big guys were all at 94. I didn't realize that there was loushing. When you water it down, all of a sudden it clouds, and unless you chill filter, which I don't have one, you would be able to remove that haze. So instead of putting colored glass around the bottle, like they do in the UK to cover up the, the oil, it's funny, is that people have that gin incident because they don't look at the proof. They just assume that it's 40% because it's clear. It's a weird thing. Huh. And they have that horrible experience and they blame gin. I think it's gin gets victimized in that. Yeah. But when you get someone to bring it back and you get them to try it again, and I think that's what's so cool about gin is when you get somebody, what I will have them do is pinch their nose. Because juniper is something that creates a visceral reaction to people who trigger that smell of being sick, or the pine saw, or mm. the this. It's very interesting. But as soon as you get rid of the initial sensory thing of the smell of the juniper, and you let someone try it, all of a sudden, like, oh my god, I could drink this. And you're like, yeah, you just don't. The, the evergreen or the conifer smell is throwing you off. Um, but I, I, it's, it's stuff that we do at our distillery just to learn why. 
someone doesn't like it, and most of the time it's just from that quick visceral reaction. Um, you know, and it sort of goes back to uh, kind of the former name of your distillery, Prohibition. Uh, gin probably got a bad rap during Prohibition because everyone talked about bathtub gin, and there's sort of that connection people automatically make. So it's almost like it had like a bad marketing campaign to begin with, like 80 odd years ago, you know. Yeah, it it um, it definitely had that bad bad marketing piece. <laughs> I know that my mom, when I started the distillery, she would keep saying, "You're gonna go blind." You're going to go blind from doing this. And I and I, I know she said that to me as a kid as well. <laughs> we won't go there. <laughs> but but when you look at it is there everybody takes if you talk about misinformation, right? Is it's that, that it's not that it was the, the old fake news things that back then the government switched out and put wood ethanol into the supply chain instead of instead of ethanol. Mm. And so they went through and they, they drank they drank grain wood alcohol and went blind. It wasn't for people. It, it, it is. It is. They put that. No, you won't go blind from drinking gin. That poor, poor gin movement at that time. And um, you know, let's talk uh, vodka a little bit. I mean, obviously, you've got a, a corn-based vodka, correct? And um, uh, tell us about what uh, corn kind of brings to the table in terms of mouthfeel and that sort of thing with vodka, since vodka. Um, you know, obviously the, the definition for vodka is changing now. There can be character, and obviously there's always been character to vodka, but, you know, it's sort of, it, it's interesting how that, that's starting. We're, we're actually, we have a cover story coming up on vodka, so I, I'm, I'm curious to get your take on sort of the TTV definition now and also uh, the, you know, how different uh, substrates affect the the texture of the mouthfeel, you know, particularly corn versus wheat versus other things. Yeah. You know, for me, I got in this whole business just to make vodka. I I didn't think I was going to make whiskey. I didn't think I was going to make anything, but I kind of got, you know, when you have the equipment, you keep running. We made, every, we made our vodka out of corn. We make our gin out of corn. I always say that vodka is the judge of a distillery. Um, we actually, whenever I walk into any distillery or any place around the world, if there's vodka on the bar, I'm going to try the vodka first. If you go through and you smell, when you talk about residual character, that, that is what the definition I think the TTB calls, that they have these trace character. To me, if I grab someone's spirit and I smell it, and I'm smelling what I'm looking for, the original definition was colorless, odorless, flavorless. But that is not a definition for a consumer. That's a definition for someone that has a machine making an industrial alcohol, right? So you're going through, and it's, it can have odor, meaning no acetone, no acetate, no acetaldehyde, no methanol. So those things would be, be apparent when you smell it. So when they change the character idea to say residual character is, there's always flavor. Corn's going to always have a soft custard flavor. Wheat's going to have its own palate. Rye's going to have its own spice. There's always going to be some traces. Potato vodka always gets me when I take a sip. It gets me right at the back of the throat. Whereas corn, anything, any residual trace of alcohol is going to be on the palate. When it goes down, it's always softer. So I always find that corn, for me, I love distilling from corn because it's just soft. It creates a beautiful soft, oily mouthfeel that is just wonderful. But when you're looking at the new definitions, it's confusing, 
because all it's saying is that you know I've, I know friends that that make stuff from apples and they they will you know say hey it has residual smell and taste of apples of course it does how do you get rid of smell no matter how high you distill something we have you know there's always a smell right so when people say odorless what does that even mean it, su- it suggests I think it was just hey don't kill anybody by putting methanol in your product. So when we go in and we're actually making products, that's why I say for us, you know, we use vodka for our base for pretty much everything, that technique. I think it's one of those things that everybody for a long time, they said vodka is easy to make. I think it's quite the opposite. Vodka is the hardest thing to make. It's naked. It's just there. You're either going to look at it, smell it, taste it, and then go and create an opinion without having to work four years or five years or six years for a product to come out. I kind of look at it that if you can't make vodka, you can't show a vodka, then how are you showing off your gin and your skill set of making gin? How do you go through and gain trust for people to wait four years or two years or however long or six months to wait for your work? So I do think vodka is the key. I think, as they say, what is it? Uh, vodka is life or life is water. That's actually uh, a guy in Union Square that makes that chant. Um, but water, vodka is one of those things that I think are so essential to this industry that somehow got the negative connotation that, oh, it's just vodka. Vodka is beautiful. And I, I don't know. I love it. I think it's such a cool spirit. But where do you think the... That negative connotation came from. What what sort of has harmed the vodka category? Well, you know, we're sitting in the epicenter of New York, right? Yes. And, and you go through and you look at it. I know we 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 could look at at the the verse of the cocktail movie. You know, there are the the you know the bartenders and mixologists that that look at it as, hey, this is a tool. I want to have a tool on the bar. And then there was a the movement of, of bartenders that said. If you drink vodka, you know, the customer's not always right. I know I've been into plenty of bars when I've ordered something with vodka, and they look at you like, no, we don't serve it. We, you don't have any taste. You, we will use gin. It was just the person serving it created the separation. Mm. Consumers, consumers, they walk in. My, you know, I, it's like growing up, right? When I was a little kid, I didn't like broccoli, you know, or one of those things. And then over time, your palate changes. So I think, I don't know where the negative comes from, because what's wrong with something if you happen to be a person who likes lemonade, and you don't like the taste of alcohol, and you want to go put in vodka with lemonade? Well, that's an amazing thing for that person. The next person says, whoa, I would like a little flavor. I want some seasoning in my cooking. So they're going to go and use gin, and it's going to bring all the beautiful florals and all those things. I don't know where the negative connotation came from, but I do think it was definitely created yeah. by, it's, it's our drinking culture, you know, what's, what's happening in the drinking world, some bars went away from it, and we know all the bars that went up, we can name them probably by name, you know, that it was at Allegiance, because I know I'd be in, oh my goodness, I was in uh, a small state in the middle of nowhere, you know, town, and it was someone who was following a specific, specific heritage bartender. And the person sounded like I was talking to the person that I knew in New York City that created that, that subject. You know, they would just said, no, gin is where it's at, vodka is this. And I'm like, really? I was like, that sounds like 
it's just weird. It, it was just a, a movement, right? We have influence from people, and God bless it because there's some, there's so many great talented people behind the bars. But we do know there was a split. What was that about 12 years ago? Where it was, yeah. Where all of a sudden it was like bars were gin bar and bar were vodka bar. At the end, the customer I believe is always right. If you make a cocktail, don't let the customer change the ingredient you put in the cocktail. You work so hard on that cocktail. But if the person orders a vodka soda, don't shame them. <laughs> they may not know any better, you know? Well, obviously, you know, in the, the issue is a lot more complicated than, than what I'm about to boil it down to. Just, I'm going to preface that. Oh, and, thank you. Um, <laughs> but... One could make an argument, since we're in New York, and, you know, we can um, look at two TV shows, Sex and the City, late 90s, early 2000s, um, created, you know, Cosmos had their moment, for better or for worse, which, you know, is a vodka cocktail. So vodka was probably, at that time, cool, or at least it was the go-to ingredient of cocktail because it was sort of pre-craft cocktail movement. Or at least the the very very early stages of the craft cocktail movement. Then Sex and the City goes off the air in 2004, 2007. Another New York-based series starts, albeit a series that's set 50 years in the past. Mad Men, and you know, obviously, I'm not crediting Mad Men with the revival of classic cocktails that had already started before that, but people do sometimes give that credit saying, oh, you know, it brought back the old fashioned, which it didn't, but you know, you know, the Manhattan, which it didn't, but you can almost like, if I were somebody who was trying to make um, a pop culturally themed argument for cocktail culture, you can almost sort of trace it to that where... Um, you know, vodka had its moment in the early 2000s, and then it ended. Mad Men came along, and then more, you know, gin, and you know, they were drinking gin gimlets on the show. They were drinking Manhattan, so you had like bourbon had its resurgence and everything like that. So I, I don't know like where I was going with that, but I just wanted to get your <laughs> you know, thought you know, on that, and if you ever think about that. You know what? I don't. When I when I came out, and I and I think it's funny because I completely see the parallel. And, and I appreciate you boiling things down to simple because I'm very simple. Yeah, and I don't, I'm not, I don't mean it's, to do it's, that. I'm just done because I've heard it done in a lot of. Um, I've seen it done by marketing companies and by PR agencies and stuff because yeah. it's just easier for them because they need a story hook. Well, but well, the story, you know, when you look, you look at what those guys did, it, you know, yeah, the yes, you know. I wasn't following trends. Um, I, 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 you know, here I was starting a distillery at 30. How old am I now? Probably I was, I was about 32. No, no, yeah, like, no. I'm sorry, 36. I'm getting. I don't even know how old I am right now. I need my wife here to tell me. Um, but when I started, I came out with vodka at the height. Right at the beginning, because Tuttletown you know, was making bourbon. They were one of the four brands in New York, right? And here I am, walking into all the craft cocktail bars with bottles of vodka going, hey, you should try this. You know, because our vodka drinks like water. It is insane. Open it up before a warm glass. It's actually, it has so much character in its, in its, um, in its flavor, but it, it, it has so much beauty to it. But when I'd walk into bars, people were just dismissive, going, who the hell wants, I remember back then, who wants craft spirits? 
and who who needs a New York product? I just remember getting told that. And I remember coming to Brooklyn, going to Williamsburg, because people said everybody in Williamsburg loves local stuff, and nine out of ten bars were like, one, who needs a local product, but who needs vodka? And so I was... I'm always behind the trend, so I'm glad the trend is coming back to vodka because, yeah. boy, I've been waiting a long time. You know, my gin, I'm a couple of years behind on the gin. You know, we released that, and we ended up winning Best Spirit in New York at the New York International beating, which won the Governor's Cup back back then. It was so such an honor. But then all of a sudden, like, my distributor at the time was going, oh, but you're a vodka company. You, you we, we don't need another gin. You know, going, but I made the gin because people said they wanted gin. I don't know. I don't know what the trend is. I try not to even predict it. I'm just trying to make, I kind of make quality in limited stews because eventually one of them, one of them I'm going to hit this trend at some point. I mean, New York is a very craft-centric state across the board, across the categories, beer, uh, you know, spirits, wine, um, being in that environment, would you say it's more a blessing or a curse? I think it's a it's a blessing. You know that that New York is New York is wonderful. You know, I I, I have the opportunity because I I'm president now of the New York State Distillers Guild, and there's beautiful things coming out all over this state. From you know, heck, things that things that years ago, you know, when we started, there was a couple of guys making whiskey, a couple of guys making vodka. You know, there wasn't much in between. You know, everybody was kind of figuring their products out. Now, you don't have to leave New York to have a bar. You know, you can pick all your spirits from New York, and it's pretty much going to represent, except for the obscure, the cores, and things like that. But it is a blessing. But, you know, I, I don't, New York is a, it, it, we're, everybody wants to be in New York with brands. So when we look at it, it is a blessing. But there's also, what, 2,500 craft distilleries across the U.S.? Yeah. They all want to be in the home market. So it becomes more and more challenging to grow and stand out. And I think this is something that, that as we, we move to the future in this industry, it's hard to stand out on a shelf when you have so few shelf spaces available because the big guys didn't go anywhere. It's just more of us with great products fighting for a smaller portion of the retail shelf space and the bar shelf space. I think the world's going to have to change a little bit, and we're hoping that's what direct-to-consumer shipping will do. It'll open up avenues for us to, because for me, in the Catskills, there are so many distilleries. All my favorite distilleries happen to be within 40 minutes of me. So you can go and spend a day just in the Hudson Valley Catskills. You wouldn't be able to get to more than, what, five? You know, but we have probably a hundred within that geographic area. Um, it's, it's, it's a, it is a blessing and a curse. So. <laughs> And we haven't we haven't touched on the bourbon yet. I want to talk about um, the the mash bill, the flavor profile. What were you really going for uh, in the bourbon? Yeah. So the, my original bourbon that I made, I did 100% corn because I was only making corn mash, um, and it was great. But we started laying down um, uh, a traditional bourbon mash, doing a 70% corn. Um, I'm just doing my math: 20% rye, 10% malted barley and within that range, uh, trying to get something more, because as people were going through and I started laying down all the corn, the 100% corn, it was weird is that, and this is, you can't predict trend, is I started getting people saying, oh, but it doesn't taste like what I'm used to drinking. 
And that's part of the challenge. If someone picks up a bottle of your spirit and it doesn't taste good, or it's not reminiscent of what they're expected to see on the label, so we started changing our formulas. But wouldn't you believe it, when COVID hits, I didn't know we were one of the only 100% corn bourbons in the world. We sold everything. Everybody went through the stuff. So now I'm sitting here going, and it's great because people like the current mash bill and they're loving the whiskeys. But I'm looking at it going, how in the hell do you guess? You know, I went transition from one and right when I transitioned, that's when the one started taking off or it sold out. That was right in the middle of COVID. And so we, we started releasing the, I'll call it a traditional bourbon mash. Um, one question I like to ask a lot of the guests um, to kind of wrap things up is what of the current trends do you love and what of the current trends do you wish would just go away? You know, I, as I said, for me, you know, trends, I, I wish I could be on top of, of uh, the trends. You know, I, it, when I walk in and I see different people canning, everybody's canning, 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 and it's all, it's very, very odd, is that early on we wanted to do it, but then, again, we looked and we said, hey, I don't know if there's a market for it, and of course, there's a wonderful RTD market. Um, so when you're a person that focuses on core ingredients, because I really always felt that mixologists and consumers had great tools. You know, if you want a vodka soda, man, there's a vodka. Most people have soda streams or even a can of soda. It's very easy to go make those things. Those are the trends that I wish would yeah. go back to, like the ones that are so simple. Like, what's wrong with a twist of fresh fruit and something? Do people not have ingredients at their house anymore? So I wish the trend would go back. I think there's some, so many beautiful, beautiful RTDs that are out there. But I'm really hoping that, you know, because anytime you read anything about the growth of the category, and I know all my friends, have a, they have their entrance into it, and they have this and that, and they're like, oh, it's great, we sell so many of them. But I keep looking at it. I got in this business to make beautiful spirits. I, I don't make water. I don't make, um, I don't make sugar. These aren't the things that, I'm not a, I'm not a sugar cane grower, you know what I mean? I, I wanna make something from a grain, put it into a bottle and let it stand on its own. And I just felt, I hope that consumers get back to realizing life's not just about being simple, life's about that moment. Yeah. It's about enjoying something. It's about the idea of making that cocktail. And it's about enjoying it with friends, right? And the whole trend has been screwed up by COVID, yeah. you know, and everybody, you know, it's, it's so all over the place, but that's one trend that I hope people, because <laughs> if I get one more person walking in to telling me where we have a beautiful Bloody Mary on the shelf, like Tomo or Van Smokey, and my boy, one of the local guys, and then my bottle's next to it, and someone will walk into my taster and go, did you can that? Can you, do you have any of it in the can? And I'm like, where are you going? Where are you going that you can't... Do you remember thermoses? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Everybody's got their, their portable drinking waters, but why is it that we need to go destroy the earth with more, more uh, recycling stuff? So, yes, that's one trend I hope goes back. And for us, you know, the, the trend that I do like is more people experiment, experiencing with pores. Um, you know, so for us, our biggest thing for the last couple of years has been our bourbon grain. No, right. Be the beaver kill was something crazy is 
I, you know, for one, I, I never drank the, the, the Irish creams. I never drank that stuff. So when we made it, we just made something I thought tasted good. It was about the ingredients. And at the end, that's my only ready-to-drink icon, so I guess I can't be uh, too, too abusive of it because I am taking my bourbon, mixing it with cream and maple butter. What can you do? That's our program for today. Thanks again to Brian Fauquet for joining us. You can learn more about the distillery at dogoodspirits.com. We'll be back in a few weeks. Until then, thanks for listening, and cheers. Cheers.